Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm Mila Atmos. Today on Future Hindsight, we're talking to Matt Kalmans. He's the CEO and co-founder of AppleCart, which is a strategic political consultancy and lab. AppleCart aggregates and processes publicly available data to redefine how political organizations mobilize voters, how nonprofit organizations fundraise, and how advocacy groups lobby their elected officials. Social networks shape and inform every consequential decision we make. AppleCart maps those real-world relationships and leverages them to achieve results. Thank you, Matt. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. As I explained to you, this program is really all about civic engagement and how people can be active members of our community. So it's been a little bit over a year since the election of our new president. What is on your mind nowadays when you think about our society since the inauguration? I think it's extremely interesting when I think about um, children uh, for whom the world we live in now with President Trump as our president is going to be their only exposure to civic life, um, which on one hand, having him as their first president is probably fairly interesting. But in addition to that, the level of activism around people's involvement in politics and frankly, attention to it is probably heightened relative to what they would have otherwise seen had they been born at another point. From a civic engagement perspective, it may end up being a very positive thing because something you see in a lot of the literature around civic engagement and political activism is that uh, getting people to vote, getting people to engage is a very, very hard behavior to change and to provoke because there's no financial incentive uh, for most people to voting and participating. You know, there's little in the way of incentive to prompt civic involvement. And so it's very, very hard, even with large amounts of money, to get people to vote who don't normally vote or to change people's behavior. And in some cases, I think it takes an event sort of like the election of President Trump to shift a lot of people's attention to this. And I, I, I don't know if it's across the country that this is the case, but we're seeing even in elections in the off year in 2017, very high degrees of increased turnout in elections, um, which is a pretty good signal for people's attention to civic engagement. So I think on that front, you know, I think that's pretty interesting. Yes, it is that everybody <laughs> is really getting involved. And perhaps we wouldn't be seeing this if we had a democratic president. So my next question about this is that you basically do micro voter targeting, or you have done yeah, in the past. Sure. And uh, you do this through something you call a social graph. Can you explain what a social graph is? Sure. So sort of the, the best in class in terms of targeting voters in elections for a very long time is what was called you know, micro targeting. So the idea was for campaigns that are trying to decide who to contact and with what message and how to activate people, they'd build machine learning models that would process very large amounts of data about everybody that's registered to vote in the uh, geography that they were involved in an election. The data they have on every individual is obviously name and address and all that sort of stuff. But in addition to that, they have demographic data that tells you what it, each individual voter's race, income, ethnicity, marital status, et cetera, is. And then in addition to that, they have some consumer behavior data around uh, whether you subscribe to certain types of magazines and things along those lines. And so in order to predict voter behavior, what they would do is run a survey, a political poll that would ask people a series of questions um, around who they're likely to support in an election, whether they're likely to turn out to vote, which messages they might prefer to hear that might prompt them to support one candidate or oppose another. 
and they would ask that to a statistically significant sample of voters, and they'd look at the responses and try to use machine learning models to build correlations between all those different variables they have on individuals so they can make predictions around, for everyone they didn't speak to in the poll, how they might have responded to the questions that were asked to the people for whom they have actual responses. And so that prompted a period in political campaigning where people were making very significant financial investments in campaigns based off of these probabilistic predictions. And on one hand, it was fairly remarkable because there were people for whom you, know, you were able to run a campaign and, and have a fairly good sense of uh, what people were likely to support in terms of candidate and what people were likely to respond to, and you could run a pretty sophisticated effort. But on the other hand, I think some people took that a, a, a stage too far where they sort of lost sight of individuals, that this is all about people and their reactions to what's going on and would look at people sort of like you would molecules in a science experiment and try to predict behavior based off of these sorts of static variables. And it actually presented a political problem for people running campaigns when they would do this because you get to an awful lot of parts of the country where people were indistinguishable on the descriptive variables that they were modeling people off of. So you go to a place like New Hampshire, there's not a terrible amount of racial diversity. There's not a terrible amount of difference in terms of income. So it's very hard to model voter behavior. And so what my company did was we looked at this and said, it seems like you're missing a fairly major variable in terms of promoting and targeting voter behavior. And that's, you know, who's interacting with people on a day-to-day -day basis. Folks don't make their political decisions in a bubble. You go to work, you hear political things, you see it on television, you see it from your friends, you, everybody's on Facebook and sees other people talking about politics. If you're evaluating people's likelihood to support a candidate or an issue purely based on what they look like, rather than who they're interacting with on a day-to-day -day basis, you're missing a pretty big signal to people's political behavior. And so what we did is we went out and constructed something called a social graph, which was an attempt to take every bit of publicly available data out there that might evidence relationships between people. So everything from about us pages on company websites to uh, social media to local newspaper articles, you know, everything that evidences where people work, who people are friends with, who people spend time with, and collect that all. So for every voter, you weren't just looking at them as an individual, but you were able to look at who are they talking to on a day-to-day -day basis, who's influencing their political opinions. And we found in the context of elections that that not only allowed you to predict voter behavior with a much higher degree of accuracy because you were taking those other factors into account, but also allowed you to do some pretty incredible things in terms of uh, leveraging supporters of political candidates or political organizations to action. So you know, if you, for example, were a volunteer for a campaign, the best-in-class way of using you as a campaign volunteer might be to have you call people who were likely to vote in the upcoming election. And your experience as a volunteer might be those people frequently hang up on you when you call on the phone, uh, are not particularly happy to talk to you. But with our data, what we're able to do is say, if you've got a list of a thousand supporters, here are the people who they know who they should be reaching out to to help the campaign or help the cause because they actually have a relationship. So if they were to call those people up, not only would their call be answered, but you'd probably have a fairly effective conversation with that person because you've got a relationship. Our clients use that in any number of different ways from leveraging their supporters to reach people who could potentially be converted as additional supporters to influencing people whose opinions they're trying to change. So if they're trying to get a, uh, a senator to change their position on a bill, you know, the best-in-class way of influencing them uh, for a corporation or a cause might be to put up a television ad in their congressional district and 
try to put a lot of pressure on them through that sort of broadcast means. But what they do with us is we identify who that congressman knows, who the people are who are in the social network of the person they're trying to influence. And we have our clients advertise specifically to people who have personal relationships with the member of Congress they're trying to influence, knowing full well that members of Congress are very hard to influence. Perhaps the best way to do that is through people who they actually know, who they have a trusted relationship with, if you can get those people talking about the issue, enthused about the issue, they're far more likely to have leverage in terms of changing their opinions and persuading them than a random constituent. So that's that's really what we've done is, has been said, most decisions you make on a day-to-day basis in the commercial realm, where you go, what movies you watch, what restaurants you go to, what purchase decisions you made fairly intuitively are often based off of you know what you hear from your friends. Was that restaurant good or bad? Was that movie good or bad? So what we've done is built some technology to encourage campaigns and other advocacy groups to think similarly about the fact that People can be motivated to action through the networks of people they know rather than just off of looking at a probabilistic score and a model that might tell you based off of what somebody looks like, whether they're more likely or less likely to support you. Interesting. So the first thing that came to my mind, now that you're talking about it in this way, uh, as opposed to just reading about it on your website, uh, is the Yelp model. Because on the Yelp model, even though I don't know those people, it's a real person review, right? Who says the restaurant was delicious and the service was good and everything arrived on time. It was clean. All these things that I take into consideration because another human being made this determination. And in a way, is it fair to say that this is analogous in some sense that it takes real life interactions into consideration? That's, that's the exact same idea. So social pressure for a very long time has been the most powerful thing to influence political behavior. It's the reason why unions work. It's the reason why most organizations work. So if you don't have a union, if you don't have you know, tons of people that are willing to knock on doors for you, through advertising and through the outreach you do, can you leverage the relationships in order to grow your vote share? And there's there actually a really fascinating study about this that came out of Yale in the early 2000s that got us thinking about this, where um, there were a series of Yale scientists that ran randomized controlled experiments testing various forms of influence on different voters um, to change their behavior, get them out to vote, get them to change their opinions about issues. They realized politics is one of the few places where you have large enough groups of people that you can run actual randomized controlled experiments. And they held out groups of people as controls and different groups of people they would send a TV ad to or send a piece of direct mail to or knock on their door and make phone calls to them. And they'd observe, do each of these interventions actually have any sort of impact on whether somebody was likely to vote? And they, and they found essentially that the vast majority of paid forms of outreach, actual advertising, were not particularly effective. In some cases, had a negligible or statistically insignificant increase in terms of people's voter behavior. The one thing that worked fairly well to the same point was knocking on people's doors, the same sort of person-to-person interaction. The thing they tried, though, that worked the best of anything was sending people a fairly ugly black and white letter that looked like it came from the DMV or from the government that said, dear Matt, whether you realize it or not, your voter turnout rate, you know, your vote history, whether or not you vote in past elections is public record, here it is. And then in the chart below, here are your neighbors voting records. So whether or not they've voted in past elections and the letter basically ends by saying, there's a question mark at the 
upcoming 2018 election, we'll send an updated version of these charts out after the election, letting everybody know whether or not you, you know, did your civic duty in your community. And this produced the largest voter turnout increase in, in U.S. history and really proved the point that you know, it wasn't politics, it wasn't policy, it wasn't issues that motivated political behavior. At the end of the day, it was social pressure. It was the idea that other people are doing this thing that's known to be a social good and, and you may not be, and there might be some sort of consequence insofar as it's publicly available that you're not doing that. There's been a lot of experimental evidence for this, um, but, but also you know, fairly intuitive evidence insofar as you know, when you think about what the real political powers are conventionally in you know, American history and, and in other countries' political history, it's, it's been groups that organize folks. And that's ultimately what politics is about, putting aside the, the very fancy uh, technology and all, all the other sort of goodies most conventional campaigns are using these days. So is that primarily the vehicle that you use in order to turn out voters is to send them this letter that looks like it came from the DMV? There are a lot of different folks um, that use this in campaign contexts. Some people, their neighbor's voting record has been used by, by all sorts of different groups. So that's one very effective tactic for turning people out to vote. I mean, our company more generally uses this sort of data about who people know to help campaigns figure out who to raise money from, uh, you know, how to leverage their existing donors to find new donors, how to model people's behavior more accurately based off of who's talking to them on a day-to-day -day basis, how to leverage volunteers, any number of different things like that. How long does it take you to gather all this data? Because you take in real-life experiences, their offices, their About Us page, and all this must take a tremendous amount of time <laughs> and effort to put together in a way that's not sort of a Google search. It was, it was very, very hard when we first started doing this. I mean, our company started out as a uh, dorm room startup at the University of Pennsylvania. And um, the first time we did this, it took us months and months and months to build out the first state. Um, but over time, we were able to build algorithms and more efficient processes that match this information collected at much higher scale, more accurately. And it's to the point where we can build out a state the size of Illinois, for example, in, in a matter of a few weeks at this point. So it's it gotten considerably faster with the, with the magic of technology these days. Oh, amazing. Tell me a little bit about how technology has made it easier for you. I think the way back when you, you'd have actual human beings who are at your disposal to do things for you, and that's still very well documented, the best way to influence people's political opinions. But really what the technology has helped you do is process many, many, many more data points than any human brain possibly could about how to organize those people, who to do outreach to, where to start, and really how to prioritize a very limited amount of resources in order to have the highest impact. That's really where it's most helpful prioritizing resources to achieve outcomes at very large scale, processing all of this data to make decisions about who you should send a mail piece to or what door you should knock on or who you should talk to with, with each message. That's something that technology has enabled campaigns to do in a remarkably efficient way that really has allowed them to be much more effective with their resources and, and more sophisticated overall than they had been previously. That's pretty cool, right? I mean, this is the future. The future is now. The future is now. now. Yeah. That's it. What motivated you to start this in your dorm room? Well, I mean, I'd, I'd worked on um, a number of campaigns growing up. I grew up in Connecticut, and I saw very, very good candidates for office spending pretty tremendous amounts of money in campaigns on relatively ineffective means by every study ever uh, conducted of communicating with people. And I saw that primarily in primary elections, which most people pay less attention to, but 
actually, in my view, are the most important form of civic engagement that exists. You know, 90% of congressional elections in this country are decided because of gerrymandering in the primary rather than the general, yet it sees a small, small fraction of the amount of spending that occurs in the general election. I saw this phenomenon and saw that most of these primary elections, you got 25, 50,000 people voting in a district where there are 700,000 residents. Extraordinarily few people making the decisions at the end of the day, but most of the communications that were going out were via television and other broadcast means where you've got to imagine 95, 96% of the ad impressions that are being delivered are not hitting anybody who has any hope of voting in these elections. And based off of all that research that had been conducted at Yale and elsewhere, it was clear there had to be better ways, more efficient ways to communicate with people and influence them. And that's really what, what motivated me originally was, frankly, seeing higher civic engagement, seeing 20,000 people make a decision about who should be a congressman for 700,000 people, one that presents a tremendous opportunity if you're trying to influence the political process to do so in a, in a fairly easy way to see the sort of change you'd like to see. Personally, for me, I wanted to see more solutions-oriented people elected to office and the right incentives for that were not coming from an electorate that was made up of 20,000 people. I and my partners wanted to build tools that helped people that were trying to influence the political process take advantage of the fact that there were very few people participating to draw more people into the process and do so in the most cost-effective way possible. So that's truly what got us started originally. That's very exciting. Thank it's uh, really idealistic <laughs> and optimistic in the best ways. Uh, I'm into that. So I really like your scientific approach by proven methodology that you are trying to change the way that citizens are going out to vote. So let's say everybody who's running for office were to hire you. This is a hypothetical, of course, but let's say in every race right. you are involved. And if that were the case, then what do you think would be the frontier, the possibility for civic engagement in terms of voting specifically, because that's essentially what you do in terms yeah. of the turnout. Instead of 20,000, what do you think is realistic in an optimistic scenario? I think you would see radically different people elected to office because it's not just a simple matter of 20,000 people deciding the outcomes of these elections and that being fundamentally undemocratic. That's part of the problem. The worst problem is there's a major ideological skew in terms of who those people are. 20,000 are not representative of the 700,000. They're in many cases far more ideologically extreme, prone to supporting people who are unwavering in their support for partisan positions. And I think that leads us, frankly, at the macroscopic level to a consequence of a Congress that can't get anything done that further sort of perpetuates a cycle of people not wanting to engage in politics because they feel like the system's broken. And at the end of the day, that, that sort of starts with this phenomenon. So that's really what was motivating to us was if you could juice turnout, you'd see very different people being elected that I think overall would be far more willing to compromise and accomplish big things for the country. Um, and if you could impact you know, that dynamic, I think you'd see a much more engaged citizenry because it wouldn't feel like the politics we're trying to get people to engage in was so hopelessly broken and, and overcome with uh, graft and all sorts of other uh, undesirable things. Yes, it's so prone to corruption yep. by being essentially bought in one way in the sense that it is no longer pure yeah. and clean. You recognize that complex organizations don't have simple problems that can be solved by cookie-cutter frameworks and magic bullets. 
What have you learned from your work in these elections uh, in terms of how Americans function as a society? Overall, there, there are a few things you'd probably take away. The first is that people respond to the call to civic engagement in a fairly similar way. So the fact that any of these experiments even work proves that civic engagement is the same sort of complex organism that many other things that people study is. And, and at the end of the day, what that means is regardless of whether you're black, white, Latino, Republican, Democrat, people still fundamentally know it's a, it's a good thing to participate in the civic process, can still fundamentally be organized and pressured by those around them to engage more fully. And I think that that is a sort of comforting uh, human sentiment that gives you hope that there is the ability to increase civic engagement if you can leverage that premise. And, and it's been pretty consistently seen, regardless of where you're looking at the political environment, that that's the case, that this is a human behavior that you can study and, and therefore can be understood and, and influenced in a way that's productive and, and hopefully produces better outcomes. I think that's you know, overall the, the, the most comforting thing. And then beyond that, I, I think you know, this is a problem that is not the same everywhere. The civic engagement's lower in certain places than others, but it's pretty bad across the board. And it's not like uh, you go to the Upper East Side of Manhattan and it's uh, so tremendous and you go to other parts of the country and it's so terrible. Most Americans, regardless of income, ethnicity, et cetera, lack a pretty fundamental commitment to participating in the political process. It's not a positive thing, but I, I think it is a commonality that you see across the country. Pretty fundamental problem. I still believe that is where most of the issues in this country stem from. It's that very simple phenomenon. The phenomenon of lack of civic engagement. Yeah, you have a democracy where almost nobody participates and advocates for their, their own best interests and, and that of their community. It's a sort of a fundamental tenet of a well-functioning democracy and through gerrymandering and any number of other sort of institutional issues, it's made it much harder to have an unbiased democratic process sort of flourish. Yes, I agree with that. So this is a little bit in alignment with what you just said. Uh, you say that you thrive on doing the impossible and turning underdogs into winners. So this is a question about how can we turn Americans, American citizens into winners? How can we turn the tide? My fundamental belief is part of the reason people aren't engaged is because the outcomes they're seeing on their CNN show every morning are so dispiriting. You know, why would you want to engage? So I, th I think we see the role of a lot of what we do in campaigns in trying to sort of override some of these baseline uh, institutional problems around low voter turnout and gerrymandering and other things that bias the process such that if you can sort of short circuit that and get some people elected that people don't expect to get elected, hopefully you can get to the point where Americans see outcomes that engage them or uh, inspire them uh, to action, whether that's positive or negative. And that gets us to a point where people, you know, without our intervention, start turning out at higher rates. One of the things you see in a lot of these studies is once people go from not voting to voting, that's a behavior that continues over the long term. So that's a very promising fact for you know, the sort of work that we do. Our greatest hope is that at least as, as far as we're politically concerned that you know, the need for what we do in politics goes out of business at some point. Turnout's so high, people are so engaged, you know, why, why do you need people like us to us? That's the ultimate horizon. 
That would be totally awesome. I agree. <laughs> so, uh, well, your roots are in politics, but you also use your methods to help nonprofit and other organizations to identify untapped donors. This gives you really interesting access to a wide range of communities. Are the connections you see in the political social graph similar to the nonprofit or university ones? I'm just kind of curious whether you have similar analogies or um, yeah, I mean, relationships. It's, it's it's interesting. I think what we've seen pretty consistently is you know when we work on campaigns, we meet a lot of people that you know, for whom this is not their day job. They you know, work at large companies or other organizations where they recognize that the same sort of premise around how do you leverage social relationships to influence people is equally applicable there. And that's frankly how we ended up doing as much commercial work as we've started to do. And I, I frankly think that's where our company will do the majority of its work over the long term, even though we're, we started in politics. I mean, I think of campaigns in many ways as, as startups. You know, they start with no money, very limited resources, and have a finite period of time to go from zero to one. And out of that, has come a lot of leading edge technology, has come a lot of understanding of human behavior. And one of the advantages to starting a data science company in politics is you're dealing with millions and millions and millions of people whose behavior you get to study. There's a pretty long history of this sort of technique beginning here and then migrating to other spaces because human behavior is human behavior, it's human behavior. And we're clearly influenced in our commercial decision-making, in uh, our political activism outside of elections, and any number of other spaces by what we see and hear from people around us. So it stands to reason that you know, if you can leverage that outside of politics, it should be equally applicable. That's sort of the, the premise of our company's growth strategy over the long term. I like it. Yeah, I think it's true. Human behavior is human behavior. <laughs> to a certain extent, it's all applicable across the board. So here's my last question. Where do you personally choose to invest to plant your seeds so we can face our common destiny together as a society? You see a lot of people um, that have engaged politically or otherwise around specific candidates or specific causes or specific organizations. To me, I, it still to me boils down to the fact that very few people participate in, in democracy. And so we've sort of tried to focus all of our effort on solving that problem, leveraging tools that we can build, custom built to solving that problem, to change that paradigm, both in the short term to get better people elected, but in the medium and long term to hopefully change civic behavior more broadly in the United States. I mean, it doesn't have to be like this. Our voter participation, our civic engagement is much lower than many other countries. And I, th I think that's where our problems in education and science investment and immigration and budgetary deficits, everything sort of stems from that in my view. And so if you can, if you can solve that, you know, the rest of these things sort of flow downstream from there. I couldn't agree more. I'm so happy that you're doing this work. Matthew Kalmans is the CEO and co-founder of AppleCart. Thank you. Thank you. What surprised me most about this conversation with Matt was the enduring power of face-to-face -face interactions. The real-life conversations we have with our coworkers and friends are influential in our decision-making. We do fundamentally understand that being more fully engaged in our society is a good thing. We do respond to social pressure for higher civic engagement and voter participation. And once we go from non-voting to voting, that change in behavior continues in the long term. Most importantly, higher voter turnout will lead to radically different people being elected into office. People who are not only solution-oriented, but perhaps 
most saliently will be a better representation of us as a society. I wonder, what would our world look like if we all jumped in and participated? Food for thought. On the next episode, we talk to Dr. Richard Betts. He is the director of the Salzman Institute of War and Peace Studies and the director of the International Security Policy Program at Columbia University. How can we engage? So there's a whole range of alternatives from minimal to maximal, depending on how much people are willing to do. I'd say the minimum in a democracy is people need to learn enough to vote responsibly and to vote. And the maximum is to roll up your sleeves and actually contribute hours to uh, promoting movements you believe in. Until next time, I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Tsungwu. Find us online at futurehindsight.us and listen to us through your favorite streaming services. Thank you.